7 will be the text of our sermon tonight as we think about the title of our sermon that Jesus stood condemned in the halls of Pilate. You know, nearly 2,000 years ago, we find that Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and there were trumped up charges. If anything, the trials of Jesus were done underhanded. They were done privily in such a way because that was the only way they could condemn him. Because he was not guilty of anything that they said. He thus, unfortunately, was found guilty. Sentenced to death. Even though he was without guilt. And so Pilate, as you well know, delivered him to be crucified. But on a positive note, Jesus went to the cross. He suffered, bled, and died for each one of us, for every one of us, so that we might have eternal life. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that there was the prophecies that led Christ to the cross and that he fulfilled that so that I could have the hope that you could have the hope of eternal life in heaven. We want to talk about the events that were surrounding the trial itself and then the crucifixion of Christ. We begin by calling attention to the interrogation of Jesus. And during this interrogation, the question was asked by Pilate, Are thou the king of the Jews? And verse 11, Jesus responded by saying, Thou sayest... Or in other words, it is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. And as we think about this question and the interrogation process, we realize that Pilate misunderstood the very kingship of Jesus. Because you see, he asked in a very appointed way, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus was indeed a king. But Pilate misunderstood the nature of his kingship. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it was Herod that once asked that question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Matthew 2, 2. And we find later in the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus as he rode, as he made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, that the people on that occasion spread the palm branches before him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, John 12, 13. And so you see, Jesus indeed was a king. Paul pronounced him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords in 1 Timothy six fifteen. But there was also something else here that we ought to see, and that is that he not only misunderstood the kingship, but he misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. For you see, if you are a king, then you have to have a kingdom. Pilate, much like many political leaders in that day and time, when they thought about a king or a kingdom, they, they thought about a secular king. They thought about a secular kingdom, that which is physical. They had no idea that Christ came to establish a kingdom that would be spiritual. 
one over which he rules and reigns, a spiritual kingdom. In John chapter 18, as Jesus stood before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world. That's right. It emphasizes the nature of his kingdom. It's not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Jesus had promised to establish a kingdom when John the baptizer began his preaching in the long ago when he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's nearby, right around the corner, Matthew 3, 2. Matthew tells us that Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he held the very same message according to Matthew 4, 17. To repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 9, in verse 1, Jesus even told those that lived in the first century, He said, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall never taste death, shall not taste of death till they have seen that kingdom come with glory and power. Jesus was talking about the church, the spiritual institution over which He now functions as the head. Luke tells us in Luke 17, 20 and 21 that Jesus talked about that spiritual nature of the kingdom because he said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's interesting to notice that the Bible tells us that we are in the kingdom and the kingdom is in us of which tells us the fact that it's a spiritual institution. The second thing that we need to see is the, in this interrogation process that not only did Pilate misunderstand the kingship of Jesus, but the Bible tells us that he marveled at King Jesus. Notice what it said there in verse 12 of our text. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Nothing. Then Pilate then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that even the governor marveled greatly. That word marveled here simply means to wonder at, to be in amazement. The idea is that Jesus stood before him. He marveled that he offered no defense. In their minds, he's guilty because he said nothing. He didn't even try to defend himself. Was Jesus guilty of the crimes? Absolutely not. Not in no, not in any way. And yet Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate answering him not one word. I think that there's some meaningful application here for us in that text. And that is that there are a lot of people in our world that marvel at the greatness of Jesus. You know, if you were to sit down and, and talk with people and one-on-one -on -one about Jesus Christ, you, you'll, you'll find that they all have a lot of good things to say about him. A lot of good things. They would talk about his virtuous character, his integrity, his, his morality. They would see him as a, a sympathetic figure. He had a lot of compassion for people. They would talk about his good deeds, his con kindness, his, his words of compassion. 
You know, there's a lot of attributes that we can read that Jesus demonstrated during his earthly life and ministry. And there's no doubt in my mind that when you look at Jesus, he stands alone in many, many respects. And so people marvel at Jesus. But the problem, however, is that they never chose to obey him. They never choose to obey him. Oh, they marveled at his greatness. They marveled at his, his abilities. They will agree that he was a great man, that he did a lot of great things. They will agree that there are many fine things that have been written about the life of Jesus, but not enough for them to come to obedience. Not enough for them to become a follower of Jesus. They're not interested. John gives us commentary of the Jews of his day in John 1.11 that John said that he came unto his own and his own received him not. I would encourage you sometime to go through the narratives of the gospel record to go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and notice the number of people that had the opportunity to stand face to face with Jesus the Christ. And notice the number of lies that he changed. On the flip side of that is to notice how many people chose not to follow him as well. In light of his unbelievable ministry, I think about the marvelous words of Jesus and then his miracles. You know, one of the crowning miracles in his ministry was the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. But he, he came right out of that grave. Right out of that grave. Some people believed in Jesus as a result of that great miracle. But if you read that text in John 11, you're going to find that many people went away in unbelief. As a matter of fact, some went away with the intent of plotting and planning to have him crucified, killed. Verse 53, And so Pilate marveled at King Jesus, not unlike many today. But then there's a second thing, and that is the innocence of Jesus. We talked about the trumped-up charges, the interrogation that was leveled against him, the Son of God. But yet it's interesting to me that two times here in Matthew 27, in the context that we're looking at, Jesus identified, he's identified as a just person. First, by the wife of Pilate, and then secondly, by Pilate himself. That ought to tell us something, doesn't it? I mean, as we think about the innocence of Jesus, we call attention to Pilate as he ignored the warning of his wife. Look at verse 15 beginning. The Bible says now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And, and they that had been not... And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, whom is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Look at verse 19. And notice, And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? I can just picture that in my mind. 
you shouldn't have nothing to do with him. Not at all. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife was correct in her assessment. She affirmed that Jesus of Nazareth was a just man. That is, she did not believe he was guilty. You're treading on thin ice, Pilate. If you convict him. And here is this howling mob crying for the head of Jesus. Pontius Pilate's own wife, this political leader's wife, tells him that Jesus is a just man. And then we see not only did he ignore the warning of his wife, but he ignored the wisdom in his own mind because Pilate believed Jesus was innocent as well. First, there is this prevailing custom in verse 15. There was this custom in that day to release to the multitude a prisoner whom they wished. And so they, they had the option. These, these people had the option to choose between Barabbas or, or Jesus. Barabbas is identified by Matthew as a notorious prisoner or uh, a notorious uh, thief, uh, thief. Can't even think of the word. Thief. But Luke tells us in his account that he was an insurrectionist in that he was a murderer. I would say he was guilty of all, right? And yet they're calling for the head of the Son of God if you were to weigh that out on the balances. It wouldn't work, would it? Can you imagine the kind of mentality back then? Here is this notorious prisoner on the one hand, and then Jesus of Nazareth, the very Son of God, on the other, and they're calling for the release of Barabbas? Do you know what he's going to do when he gets back out into the public? Thievery, murder, but the Son of God, Jesus. The Christ. They're calling for the release of Barabbas because they don't want Jesus. But then there's the probing consideration here. Notice what it said in verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now the governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. Pilate wanted to know, What do you want me to do with Jesus, who's called Christ? That is the anointed one, the Messiah. They wanted him crucified. Let me ask this question tonight. What are you going to do with Jesus? Let's just say that 2,000 years ago that question was asked. You happened to be there among those others. It's a powerful question. It's a personal question. But it's one for every one of us to think about. What are we going to do with Jesus? Now I want you to... Take it today. Because by faith we, not, we read it, we believe it, we understand it. And when we're 2,000 years later, 
the question can be asked, very powerful and personal, what are you going to do with Jesus? What will we do with him? We have an opportunity to follow him. What will we do? But there is coming a day in which a question will be asked, what will he do with you? Might be based on what you did with Jesus. In John 12, 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Did you know that you're going to be given account of your life to Jesus? Whether you like it or not. The Bible tells us that we shall all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul said that every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, Romans 14, 11. That is every one of us, even those online, even those that are outside, even those who are down the road, across the country, they're going to be there. Every knee, every one of us, we will stand before the Son of God and the Bible tells us when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. A-L-L. Not one will be left out. Even those that are back in the deep, dark jungles that you had to pipe sunshine into them will be there. Every one of us. You will be there. I will be there. And every tongue will confess, but it will be too late. Every knee shall bow, but it will be too late. And we will give an account of the deeds that we've done in this morning, whether good or bad. And so again, the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? The second question was, what is Jesus going to do with you? You know, Pontius Pilate, before whom Jesus stood, We'll be there on that judgment day. We will be witnesses of that one. And those who took part in the very death of Jesus are going to be there. Those who plated that crown of thorns on his brow will be there. That soldier that pierced his side and blood and water came out will be there. What will you do with Jesus and what will Jesus do with you? John tells us that the very one that pierced that side will be there in Revelation 1 7. And so the innocence of Jesus, even Pontius Pilate believed in the innocence of Jesus, but then I want you to think about the injustice that was done to Jesus. The Bible tells us that Pontius Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. There are two things here. Number one, there's the foolishness of Pilate. Listen to his, his declaration about Jesus, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing but rather atonement was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of his blood. I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. Was he really innocent? No, not at all. Pilate thought he could wash his hands of the matter 
that he could stand with a clear conscience, but that wasn't the case. He was a political leader. He had the opportunity to stand up and to speak against. Luke tells us in his account that three times Pontius Pilate asked that question, what evil has this man done? What evil has he done? Luke 23, 22. He also said, this man has done nothing worthy of this. Pontius Pilate was a coward. He had no spine. He could have stood up. He could have said, look, Jesus is innocent. But he didn't do that. Did you know that Jesus said on one occasion that he that is not with me is against me? Matthew 12, 30. There's no neutral ground. Pilate was looking for neutral ground with the problem. However, it didn't work. Now, we've talked about his declaration about Jesus before the crucifixion, but the Bible also tells us about his deliverance of Jesus to be crucified. Look at verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You know, Jesus was nearly beaten to death by the scourge. There have been some that have looked at that particular point and they've, historians, they've gone back and they look at the scourging that happened in those days. That, that leather, leather whip that has the intertwined bone chips and steel balls. That every time that they hit his back, it literally ripped the flesh. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Jesus was no exception because there was left a bloody mess. Look at verse 27. The Bible tells us, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall, and they gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had planted that crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hell, King of the Jews. Jesus the King has been scourged. He's been stripped. They sneered at him. They spat on him. Not only did they spit on Jesus, but the Bible says they smote him. They struck him in the head. In verse 31, And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. But then notice it. What is said in verse 32. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Look at verse 36. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so here we have the account of Jesus being crucified. Pontius Pilate had a part in that. He was culpable. He was responsible in part for the death of Jesus. But then not only do we see the foolishness of Pilate, <laughs> we also see the foolishness of the people. I mean, listen to what he said there in verse 25. 
Pilate had just announced Jesus as a just man, that he was innocent of the blood of Jesus. And here's what the people said. Here are some foolish words. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be upon us. But not only on us, but on our children. Do you think they really understood that they were in the presence of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah? The one that the prophets had foretold of centuries early, the one that came to bear the sins of, of this sin-cursed earth? I don't think they had any idea that this man was God's only son. Now we talked about the foolish words and the behavior of these people. When you stand at the foot of the cross and you step back and you, into the halls of Pilate and you have witnessed the events that took place here, and, and really all you can do is just shake your head, right? You can just shake your head and you wonder, come on, people, are you fools? And don't you wonder, don't you wonder how Pontius Pilate could have reacted so cow cowardly? It, it's not only mind-boggling, that he stood in the presence of Jesus, but he had the opportunity to interrogate him, to question him. He verified his innocence, and yet he turned his back on him. And then you have the people. The people were so bloodthirsty for Jesus as Christ, they had the audacity to say that his blood would be upon us and on our children. It wouldn't be long before a multitude of people would be assembled in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And on that Pentecost day, the Apostle Peter would stand up and having been inspired by the Holy Spirit, he would say and preach the gospel for the first time. And Jesus had promised that Peter would receive the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, 19. He received those keys. And in Acts 2 and verse 22, the Bible tells us that he indicted them for what they had done. And then you get down to verse 36 and he says, "Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Or no, no that verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. When they said his blood be on us and on our children, that wasn't forgotten by Almighty God. They said it. The inspired Apostle Peter said, you have taken Jesus and you have put him to death. So guess what? The blood's now on you. Did that message resonate with those people on that occasion? Well, Luke tells us in Acts 2 and verse 37, that when they heard this, they were pricked to the heart. They were cut to the heart. It jolted them, and some of those people had tender hearts on that occasion, and they cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of Verse 40 tells us, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. <laughs> yeah. And he goes on to say in verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, stepping back for a moment, 
What if you had been present at that trial of Jesus, or the many trials, but especially that particular trial? What if you had the opportunity to walk with Jesus to the place of the crucifixion? What, what, what would it have been if, if they would have just said, uh, Charles, uh, we, we want you to bear his cross because he's, he's stumbling and falling instead of Simon the Cyrene? What if you, if you had stood at the foot of the cross and you listened to those seven sayings that he made on, while on that cross? Would you have said anything? Would you have taken part with those who mocked him and taunted him? Would you have cast the insults in his face? Would you have said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself? Would you believe now? Would you believe? Would you have long since made up your mind that Jesus is the son of God? You see, Matthew tells us that the centurion who was present on that occasion realized understood and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I close by saying this. He was and is the Son of God, our only hope. We talked about the trial scene, and I can't imagine having been present on that occasion that I, that I read about. When I think about the foolishness of pilots and the foolishness of the people, and the very thought that rings in my mind is this, that we don't have to be foolish like they were. Let's not be foolish like them. We don't have to turn our backs on the Son of God. We can accept Him. That is, we can accept what the Bible says about Him, that He is who He claimed to be. We can accept the testimony of the New Testament writers, the Old Testament prophets. We can accept his will. We can become one of his children. You know, Jesus is in the saving business. He is. And while on that cross, Jesus took the time to save one of the thieves, a thief who had earlier had cast in his teeth, <laughs> casting insult into the very face of Jesus, reviled him but came to the conclusion that Jesus was a just man. And he said, this man has done nothing amiss, but we, were all, but we all were guilty. He said to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today shall be with me in paradise. Here's what we need to do today. Because the thief and others at that time died before Christ died. And it wasn't until Jesus died and to fulfill his last will and testament that the only entrance into the kingdom of God was through obedience to the gospel. That would be his death, barren resurrection. Now, if we could be saved like the thief on the cross, we would be saved before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But his last will and testament, the new testament, the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man, is that we had to obey the death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus had to die. He had to be buried. He had to be able to rise on that third day from that grave before we could obey that. A lot of people don't understand that. But what, here's what we need to do. We need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We have to believe that he is the son of the living God. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 7. 
And upon our belief that he is the son of God, we want to, we're going to want to repent. We're going to turn away from those things that we've been doing that's wrong, do what's right, put off that old man, put on the new man. And by repentance of our sins and making that good confession that Jesus is the Christ, going down into the waters of baptism to rise to walk in newness of life as Jackie did and as Lexi did, as Montana did and as Wayne Bishop did, as so many others have done through the years without naming everybody, that died to sin, were buried in that watery grave and rose to walk in a newness of life. Now a child of God, ready with zeal to carry the word to so many others so that they have that same opportunity. And we're extending that opportunity, that invitation of Jesus, even to you tonight. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. But it's up to us. It's our choice. We might be here already a child of God. We wandered away. Back into the world of sin, maybe, whatever it might be. But if it was sin, then we need to repent of that, turn away from it. We need to make the good confession again, but confessing our sins now as a child of God. And then pray that God will forgive us. And we're here to pray with you. We hope that you'll make that decision tonight. Are you coming to Jesus tonight, number 10? I hope so. Because tomorrow, I want you to come. Let's together we say listen.